I remember the first time I heard Maya Angelou's poem, On the Pulse of Morning. It was my first day at work as the biology lab assistant at Hunter High School in Manhattan, and I, along with several classes of students and many other faculty members, crammed into a classroom to watch Bill Clinton's inauguration as the 42nd President of the United States, 16 years ago this Tuesday. Perhaps a little over the top in her inclusiveness, Angelou's poem fit the occasion and its promise well. It was a time of optimism for a broad spectrum of Americans who dreamed of a new era in our nation's history and who were promised such by the incoming president. And yet the opportunity for such an era was quickly squandered because the center-left Democrats of the day had forgotten in their years of opposition how to govern a nation. The promise of universal health care became the debacle of Hillary care, with undue and unfair blame being attached to the then First Lady. Insurance companies, associations of doctors, and conservative and libertarian think tanks banded together to scare the public by unearthing the only recently buried specter of socialism. Harry and Louise, their ad characters, struck the first blow in the dismantling of the optimism that was in the air in January of 1993. The promise of opening military service to people of all sexual orientations quickly became don't ask, don't tell, a policy that has done more harm than good over the last 15 years, and a new era of witch hunts and dishonorable discharges began. And the promise of a government that worked for the benefit of all people ended with the 1994 contract with America and was later buried with the passage of things such as welfare reform legislation and the Defense of Marriage Act, both signed by President Clinton in 1996. Today, we once again stand on the edge of a new day in our nation's history. And once again, the possibility looms that our hope and optimism for a better future will quickly become disappointment and frustration. Now, I don't mean to be Debbie Downer here, reigning on the inaugural parade before it's even begun, I don't want to dismiss the power of hope to inspire change or even its necessity to people who face oppression day in and day out. I don't even want to predict failure where success is so possible and so necessary. Yet here, on the eve of our country's celebration of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., an annual day of remembrance that will be followed by the historic inauguration of the first African-American president of the United States, we stand as a people next to a massive rock placed at the banks of a stream of history by a movement seeking to change the course of that stream. In 1993, Maya Angelou stood at the lectern on the Capitol steps and declared, the rock cries out to you today, you may stand on me but do not hide your face. In 2009, we once again have the choice of using that rock as pedestal and lookout 
a place from which to plot the change in course our nation and world need. Or we can choose to use the rock instead as a defensive rampart to shield us from those who would uphold the status quo. Make no mistake, it is we who have that choice, not our president-elect or his cabinet, not our Congress or our governor. We are the ones we've been waiting for. And that power is in our hands. Van Jones, the founder and president of the organization Green for All, and author of the book The Green Color Economy, was invited to give the Ware Lecture, the equivalent of the keynote address, at the Unitarian Universalist Association General Assembly last June. In that speech, here's part of what he said. He said, This denomination, this community, has held up the banner for human rights and justice through a very difficult period in our country's history. And as we begin to move forward now, it's a result of your resolve, your persistence, that we stand on the threshold of a new era in American politics. You, he said, will make the difference between success and failure for this new president, this transition to a clean, green economy, our exit from this horrible war. Let me be honest for a second. I fear somewhere, sometime, it bubbles up in my soul. A fear exists that our incoming president, as much as I support him, and as much as I was excited by his election, is disturbingly naive about the reality of what it will take to get his agenda passed over the next four years. I am gravely concerned that he has, to use a word favored by our current president, misunderestimated the resistance that his changes will find among both lawmakers and citizens. In order to make real change in this country, the president and his advisors will need to find ways to bridge some of the very serious philosophical and regional divides that exist. They will have to convince people to accept sacrifices for changes that are in the best interest of our nation and our future. They will have to create political will to restructure our lives and our government in some very fundamental ways. Now, these are not necessarily Democrat versus Republican issues or liberal versus conservative ones. In order to address issues of climate change and our addiction-like dependence on petroleum, we will need to change the ways vehicles run. We will need to invest in mass transit so that cars are no longer the centerpiece of American transportation policy. Lawmakers from states with large automotive industries, Democrats and Republicans alike, have long stood in the way of policy initiatives that included such things as increases in fuel efficiency, and they will certainly bristle at the thought of fewer cars on our roads. We will also need to address the issue of where our electric power comes from, especially if we're soon going to be plugging in our cars at night. We need to invest in power generation that is carbon-free and environmentally friendly, and on this front, we have several problems. Lawmakers from both parties who represent coal-producing regions will surely block energy legislation that refuses to endorse the mythical and unrealistic notion of clean coal. And their counterparts from Nevada, 
including the Senate Majority Leader, will block anything that includes a national repository for nuclear waste. And Senator Kennedy of Massachusetts, otherwise and in every single other way a staunch environmentalist, is hoping to stand in the way of the development of a major offshore wind farm that would ruin his family's view from the beach in Hyannisport. If he is successful, can you imagine a single congressperson or senator from a coastal area that would allow such development where they're from? If we are to have any chance at universal health care in this country, the lawmakers of both parties who are in the pockets of insurance and pharmaceutical company lobbyists will need to find a way to vote for plans that change the ways in which insurance works plans that allow our government to negotiate lower costs for prescription drugs. If our nation is to use its power in the world to create peace, we are going to have to find someone willing to compromise and someone willing to stand up for what is right despite great personal cost. Whether in Gaza or Pyongyang, Georgia or Darfur, Seemingly intractable problems await a president who promises a different way of addressing them. And I am so not looking forward to the fights over which infrastructure projects are the most shovel-ready or have the most potential for job creation. All over the nation, towns, cities, and states are already trying to position themselves for the imagined windfall they, they think is coming their way soon. Fayetteville, Arkansas wants new roads, Mamaroneck, New York wants a new sewage treatment plant, and the island-dwelling residents of Ketchikan, Alaska, still need a bridge to their airport, thanks to the political wrangling that labeled that airport nowhere. If we are to stand on the shores of the river and declare that a new day is dawning, we must not assume that a president alone can create the change needed to see that new day. Change is notoriously hard to come by, my friends. It must be actively sought. It is never passively agreed to. And the more firmly entrenched the status quo is, the harder change is going to be. Martin Luther King knew that. In his day, King faced opposition, not only from the forces of bigotry and intolerance in our country, he also had to fight people who said they were on his side, many of whom were white liberals who thought that the change King sought would come about without protest or direct action of any sort, that it could and should happen solely through political means. In January of 1963, King planned a nonviolent civil disobedience campaign And as he did so, eight ministers from liberal denominations published an open letter urging him to wait. They urged him, let government take the time it needs to enact new policies of integration and civil rights. And they warned him that they could not support direct action. From a jail in Birmingham, Alabama, having been arrested in an act of nonviolent resistance, King wrote a letter to those white liberal ministers In it, he wrote, One of the basic points in your statement is that our acts are untimely. Some have asked, Why don't you give the new administration time to act? The only answer I can give to this inquiry is that the new administration must be prodded about as much as the outgoing one before it acts. 
we will be sadly mistaken if we feel that the election of Mr. Boutwell will bring the millennium to Birmingham. Later, he continued, We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. We must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. The words of Martin Luther King. King knew that silence in the face of evil amounts to complicity with that evil. King knew that in the words of Frederick Douglass, power concedes nothing without a demand. King knew that the loftiest dreams and most impassioned speeches needed to be accompanied by the direct action of nonviolent resistance, even in the face of water hoses and dogs and stones and bats. Dr. King knew how much work it was to change our country. We live in an amazing nation, a nation in which only 45 years after Dr. King first spoke of his dream on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, an African-American man was elected our president, elected because of the content of his character and without regard to the color of his skin. On Tuesday at noon, Barack Hussein Obama, son of an African man from Kenya and a white woman from Kansas, will stand at the very opposite end of the mall in Washington, D.C., and he will take the oath of office and become the 44th president of the United States of America. Much celebration will surely follow, from the official festivities of parades and balls to the private jubilation that will be expressed in countless living rooms and classrooms across the country. It's good to celebrate this historic events this historic event, whatever your political beliefs, whomever you voted for last November, I hope that you can find some joy on Tuesday, joy in our nation's progress, joy in our ability to pass power smoothly between administrations with such different philosophies, joy in knowing that the possibility of change is in the air. I hope that you can find a way to share that joy this Tuesday in whatever way you can. Tuesday will be a day for celebration because Wednesday we must get to work. On Wednesday, those of us who believe in justice for all people must get to work, ensuring that it comes to pass. On Wednesday, those of us who believe in caring for our fragile planet must get to work doing just that. On Wednesday, those of us who believe that torture is wrong, that war is not the answer to our problems, and that civil rights are inalienable, must get to work, making sure our government's policies are changed in these arenas. On Wednesday, those of us who believe that all Americans deserve quality health care, those of us who believe that all people deserve enough to eat, those of us who believe that the dream is within reach, must get to work, pushing this great country with all our might 
so that we can together take the next steps in our nation's progress. Here, on the pulse of this new morning, we have work to do. Let us honor both the dreams of Dr. King and the hopes of President-elect Obama by doing that work. May it be so.